belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for November 12th, 2023 is called Of Grace and Grit. The teacher is Jennifer Acuff and the location is Central United Methodist Chapel in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Acuff. Um, I, uh, for those of you on the podcast, um, welcome. For those of you here this evening, welcome. Uh, I had to go through what I kind of wrote out and realized that I put many times something about this morning, this morning. I'm still getting used to transitioning to like afternoon, so welcome this evening, everybody. Um, so to many people's surprise, one of my favorite hobbies for the last decade has been quilting. Um, and I think this kind of takes people off guard because I don't strike people as a particularly artistic or creative individual. Apparently I'm a bit on the rigid side. Um, but uh, if you know me and you know about the quilting process, it's easy to see why it's an attractive hobby to me. Um, so there's like a lot of creative liberties you can take when you're quilting. But, uh, you know, with the quilting and the piecing and the finishing, you can do some things. But in the end, a very intentional plan has to be followed. Or you don't get straight edges, you don't get things that match up, uh, and you're not going to get something that's durable and beautiful and recognizable. Okay, so, so when I look at a quilt, I immediately pick up on all the little details uh, that I know took a lot of time and skill and knowledge. And I have a lot of appreciation for that. Um, that's a very specific kind of appreciation. And I actually learned to quilt from a good friend who I think also others would consider to be a very type A individual. Um, and she wasn't controlling. She was very informative, very hands-on, and it was very helpful, right? So she would teach me all of these skills um, that, that uh, wasn't overbearing. She didn't say it would make or break a quilt, and I wouldn't need it right now, but if I kept going with this, I might. Like if I kept trying to build on this skill, I would want to remember these little techniques. And um, that's become very important. So over the years, I've continued building on the skills, and that's provided me with a lot of opportunities to create some really beautiful pieces in the moment. Um, but I can look back on them now and see how far I've come with some of those skills. Um, so it doesn't make them any less beautiful just because I know more now, just because I can do a better job or um, a different job now. Uh, it still means that it's, it's a beautiful experience. Okay, So that is a particularly meaningful thing to me, to be able to keep working on something and recognize the beauty in the moment. So to this day, though, I still think that, and I brought it today, the quilt that I made with her uh, is probably one of the most beautiful quilts, most prettiest, the prettiest of pieces I think I've ever done. Um, and I think part of that might be because I have a lot of emotional attachment to it. Um, I look at it and I think about the experience of learning it together and, and seeing some of those pieces that I've built on. And so ultimately, the biggest opportunity that this hobby of quilting is for me is that it gives me an avenue to improve a skill, to know that I'm working on something, but to objectively know it's very beautiful. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect uh, before I can say that it's beautiful. So the context of today's passage, um, which we're going through Exodus, so if you're here uh, and you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, we're back into Exodus. Um, we're talking about the Israelites' journey um, out, of, uh, out of slavery and through deliverance and into covenant. That's kind of the stage we're at now. And so last week, John's lesson focused on faithful frustration, this continuous engagement with God amid hardship, distress, drought, 
um, and uncertainty. And a lot of this really comes down to control and ego and being able to relinquish all of those things so that you can actually search for love and truth and a true relationship with God, which is what the Israelites got to have the opportunity to do. So I'm hoping today's message, if you were here last week, or if you haven't listened to it on the podcast, I'm hoping this lesson, no offense, John, is a little bit more of a breath of fresh air because that was very intense <laughs> to leave us off. I can hear myself <sighs> just a little bit. Thank you. I can do that because it's my husband. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, this week's passages, we're moving on to the portion of the program in which we actually learn how the Israelites um, engaged in covenant, how they actually gave up control and ego in search for truth and love. So if you'll remember, the reason Moses initially gave for leaving Egypt was, does anybody remember? To go worship God in the desert. That was the main goal, okay? And so, so that's what they're doing here, okay? So these five chapters leading up to this, they're talking about how that's going to look. And it's a lot of rules and a lot of restrictions and a lot of this is what you do and do this and this and the Lord commanded and that to that. Okay, so uh, we're going to read part of that. So we're going to, it's actually a really long section, but um, we all agree that it was important. We read all of it together. So um, I'm going to read Exodus 39, 42 through Exodus 40, 33. So hang with me. There will be questions at the end, so be prepared. All right. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded, so Moses blessed them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, On the first day of the first month, you are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. You are to place the ark of the testimony in it and shield the ark with a special curtain. You are to bring the table and set out the things that belong on it. Then you are to bring the lampstand and set it up on, and set up its lamps. You are to put the gold altar for incense in front of the Ark of the Testimony and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. You are to put the altar for the burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. You are to put the large basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You are to set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the gate of the courtyard and take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and sanctify it with all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then you are to anoint the altar for the burnt offering with all its utensils. You are to sanctify the altar, and it will be the most holy altar. You must also anoint the large basin and its pedestal, and you are to sanctify it. Okay, so recap, we've, we've finished all the instructions on what belongs in the tent and how to set everything up, so now we have to know, okay, who's doing what, right? So you're to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you're to clothe Aaron with the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him so he may minister as my priest. You are to bring his sons and clothe them with tunics and anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may minister as my priests. Their anointing will make them a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. This is what Moses did according to all the Lord had commanded him. So he did it. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle and put its bases in its place, he set up its frames, attached its bars, and set up its posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded him. He took the testimony and put it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and then put the atonement lid on the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung the protecting curtain, and shielded the ark of the testimony from view, just as the Lord had commanded him. Okay, so God gave the instructions on how to set up the tent of meeting. He says who's doing what. 
and how they get anointed to enter the tent. And now we're going to see Moses and the Israelites actually execute the plan. So Moses put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain, and he set the bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. Then he set up the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. And he put the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain. And he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then Moses put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. He also put the altar for the burnt offering by the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then he put the large basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and their feet from it. Whenever they entered the tent of meeting and whenever they approached the altar, they would wash, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. So part of, first of all, good job. Well done. We made it. <laughs> all right. So part of the contemplative practice we have here at Grace is to read scripture and then reflect on what it made you feel. And so I'm curious to know what you all initially thought, what came to mind as I read that very long passage. Why? Sometimes a feeling can just be why. Yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I agree. What else? Ellen already knows why I brought up quilting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so the teaching team had similar thoughts, and um, uh, my immediate feelings uh, were satisfaction, satisfaction, uh, surprising no one, and tiredness, and I'll address the former first, okay? So in the teaching team meeting, Laura Holland expressed some really similar feelings, that there's actually some really great satisfaction in doing the right thing and doing it well, and I don't know. If I do something right and somebody can document it and say, he did just as the Lord commanded, and so he did it, and he did it well. I mean, that's, that's my dream of validation, right? Like, that's as good as it gets, okay? Um, and Laura also pointed out that we see some very rare clarity in these passages, which is a total contrast to a lot of the other interactions that Moses and the Israelites get to have with God during Exodus. It's all very, oh my goodness, will pass over you, and you will, you cannot see my glory, and you, you know, it's all very abstract, and this was complete contrast to that. And so, in a way, that's kind of a refreshing thing, in a way. Um, but there might have been a specific reason for why this interaction is so carefully outlined and documented. So the people were learning to worship. That is why they came out into the wilderness. Um, and so God was providing very specific instructions on how this should be done. Um, some scholars actually argue that the complexity and the specificity had to do with this idea that we needed to make sure people didn't think that they ran the show, that they didn't come up with this. This was God's divine instruction. We didn't want people arguing, coming up with, you know, trying to steal credit. Okay, so that's what some people would say. Um, and that's possible. I, I think that's reasonable. But also perhaps um, the level of detail has a lot to do, maybe more to do with the symbolism that we see drawn from it. Um, and so there's a lot of studies and commentaries on the larger and deeper significance of every aspect of the tabernacle, every aspect of the ark and down to the curtains and the color and the size and the direction it's facing, everything is symbolic. But 
this was the first example of it, right? So this this wasn't symbolic because of the right. This predates the symbolism. This is the formation of the symbolism right here. So it had to be very specific, and and everything had this greater meaning, but not just for the sake of tradition, right? It was going to be used for applications for generations and generations of significance. So in a way, I think this was God laying about laying out a bit of a blueprint. Okay, blueprint that was going to be used for a foundation for all kinds of things going forward in the Israelites' um, religion. But one of the things Shannon pointed out in our meeting was that this was really depicting a movable Garden of Eden. This was a new version of the Garden. Okay, so blueprint um, almost for another chance, another chance to engage with God and engage in this very sacred relationship. And what's even more is. The Israelites were right on track for once, okay? They, they were doing it. They were doing it right, every bit of it. They all pitched in as a community. They contributed all, all the materials and did as God commanded. And that's also exciting as well. Okay, but, but then that brings us to the question of obedience, right? So just in my heart, when I realized I got so excited, the Israelites finally did it. it gives me hope. I could finally do it, right? That's when we maybe are missing the point just a bit, right? Is that the point? Just obeying the rules, following the blueprint. Um, so we check the boxes, you worship correctly, and is that really the point? So if that's the point, then I'm concerned, and I'm also tired, and that's why my two feelings reading this was satisfaction, but also very tired. I don't want to strive for that every moment of every day, right? There's got to be something more than just checking that box. So everyone likes a job well done, right? Nobody, nobody dislikes a job well done. Uh, but when the stakes are really high and you're learning something for the first time, those, that can be a very daunting task to try something, to engage in something, especially when we know that we don't typically do it super well all the time, right? Um, and so those, that's when we start avoiding it, right? Don't do a good job if you can't do it at all. Or don't, don't do a job at all if you can't do a good job, right? That's kind of the mentality. It's this mentality I definitely have in a lot of areas. Okay, so John was quick to point out that there's a lot of futility in perfectionism, and so that's a helpful thing for me to keep in mind all the time. Right? We focus on this aspect of the instructions, then we're going to miss the theological forest for the trees. Okay, so maybe it's possible that this blueprint isn't just about function in this moment or function because, you know, the Israelites were wandering, so we need something temporary, we need something that it wasn't necessarily just function. Um, maybe it was about the intentionality of engaging with God and treating this relationship with a specific kind of respect and honor. Okay, so take, for example, the verse about Aaron and his sons washing their feet as they approach the altar, and this is, you know, this is this holy act, right? Um, and so I could wax on and on about the hygiene and sanitation. That's two of my greatest passions. But then I would be missing the forest for the trees, right? So honestly, if this ceremonial washing wasn't so ingrained in the Israelites' religion, would it have meant as much when Jesus did it at the table, right? We see illustrations throughout the entire Old and New Testament that kind of come back to this original interaction God was setting up to have with God's people. And so I think we get to, to glean from that going forward. And I think the Israelites did as well. There's a lot of sacredness in rituals, and there's beauty in the details. 
much like a detailed quilt. That's certainly what most people would consider just to be a fiddly blanket, right? Yes, that is probably true. It is a fiddly blanket, uh, but it's very beautiful. Um, we get to see artistry and care that goes into the tabernacle and all of the rituals around it. And it's actually really satisfying to think that God sees and cares and wants the detail and the artistry, that that's important. It's a form of intentionality. So Betty pointed out that when we see it this way, the passage is a little bit less like obedience, because um, at least not in the typical way that we see the term obedience, of very um, transactional or overbearing. Instead, we actually see that there's some ownership and participation and contribution from the entire community. It's almost like a giant team building exercise, right? Which I'm not usually a big fan of, but when I can see the beauty in it, or when someone can point it out to me, I get on board a lot faster. So the teaching team can, uh, came to the conclusion that this is really the difference between compliance and covenant, right? So Walter Bergman in his book that we're following with this, it's called Delivered into Covenant, notes that access to the holy God is not easy, casual, or informal. And I'm going to read that again. Access to the holy God is not easy, casual, or informal. For a lot of reasons, I think holding together this idea that God is fully accessible to us, but also we can't treat it informally. I think it's hard to hold those things together sometimes, especially in Western Christianity. That can be very challenging. But thankfully, there's some, uh, some people, some groups that have learned this practice, and they do it really well, and they share it with us, um, especially indigenous Americans who are willing to share illustrations and stories of these practices. And so um, Robin Kimmerer, in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, writes about uh, something called sh that she calls the ceremony of gratitude, and she discusses finding divine reverence in each day. And she tells the story from her childhood about her fa father's first cup of coffee in the morning, which, for those of you who are a coffee drinker, you know that that first cup is very sacred, right? Okay, so she's talking about the first cup of coffee. When my father lifts the coffee pot from the stove, the morning bustle stops. We know without being told that it's time to pay attention. He stands at the edge of camp with the coffee pot in his hands, holding the top in place with a folded pot holder. He pours the coffee on the ground in a thick brown stream. The sunlight catches the flow, striping it amber and brown and black as it falls to the earth and steams in the cool morning air. With his face in the morning sun, he pours and speaks into the stillness. Here's to the gods of Dahalas. The power of ceremony is that it marries the mundane to the sacred. The water turns to wine, the coffee to a prayer. The material and the spiritual mingle like grounds mixed with humus, transformed like steam rising from a mug into the morning mist. What else can you offer the earth, which has everything? What else can you give but something of yourself? A homemade ceremony, ceremony that makes a home. What else can we offer God, who has everything, right? Perhaps we need to be thinking about this worship, much less like obedience and more like ceremony that we're privileged to partake in. And ceremonies, though, like anything, require practice, right? Um, requires, you know, intentionality to execute it well. Um, but it's also one of those things that you can follow instructions on until you get it. You don't have to understand it to participate, right? 
Um, so Alex pointed out this is actually a lot like doing anything musical, right? You have to kind of learn the foundations, you learn the chords, you learn to sight read before you can actually really make music that's meaningful to you, right? And um, you have to kind of learn the rules of quilting as well, right? So I see this a lot, right? There are things that you learn, principles if you will, um, that allow you to create something really durable and beautiful. You can see it right now, but it's something that you can build on to make even more complex in the future, uh, even when you don't understand the why behind all of it. So learning these skills and practicing them also creates some intentionality that triggers some memories. So when I look at this quilt, there's a couple of, this was a neat quilt, it's called a sampler quilt. So it's, uh, it's 16 different piecing patterns. So I learned 16 different patterns in this one quilt. It's the first one I got to do. And um, I love this quilt. And one of the things that I like is um, this square right here. It's blue, right? So this was the square uh, that I learned. I did, not, um, I did not like triangles. I did not like to piece triangles, okay? It's a beautiful square. Um, did not like to piece triangles. If you've quilted, you know why, okay? You have to make everything line up perfectly. You have to measure perfectly. You have to cut perfectly. Uh, and, and, and then you put it all together and you look at it and you go, well, the corners didn't match up. The quilting's off now, right? It's all those things, okay? Um, then I remember a couple weeks later, I got to do a different square. And I knew how to do the triangles. And this is one of my favorites because I like to look at this square and then I look at the other one. I think they're both really beautiful. And I can see that my skill improved in just one quilt, right? And so, so it also triggers some memories and time of reflection. It's not just, I got better. It's that I look back and I see the attention to detail and I see that I learned something. And, and I love it. I love that I can have that in one piece of fabric, right? So described in the passages that we've talked about is really um, Israel's learning about this ceremonious engagement with God. It's an expression of gratitude for the grace that is being freely given to them, right? They have not earned it. God brought them out of Egypt before they could earn anything. So the passages also are describing the groundwork that's being laid for them to reflect later when they say, thus far the Lord has brought us, right? He's laying out this blueprint so that they can look back at those things. So in the ceremony, we see some human agency and the people actually getting to own their interactions with God and have active participation. And Betty points out how much this might have been a rebellion, actually, because when they were in Egypt, they had no opportunities for that. So what might look obedience to us is actually rebellion for them because they were getting to do something they could never dream of in Egypt. Right, so God rescued them, past tense, and yet there's still more to do. And that's something that Brueggemann's book talks about um, and, and kind of goes back to Shannon's comment about this new Garden of Eden, that, that something is done, it's been finished, but also there's still more to do, and how do we handle that? And that's a challenging thing for me to handle. I like things to be checked off and be done. Um, but Walter Brueggemann in his book highlights that there's this tension we see several biblical passages, not just this one, that note something being finished or complete. But then there's still more commentary, and there's still more letters, and there's still more action required, right? So there's tension, Brueggemann says, in the Christian tradition between the already of divine accomplishment and the not yet of faithful waiting for God's fullness yet to be given. 
we don't know how to learn or prepare for the things that are to come, right? But we can engage in ceremonies every day that build us up and prepare us hopefully, right, for whatever comes our way. So John emphasized again that we have to remember the Israelites are coming out of Egypt for the purpose of worshiping God in the wilderness. It seems like this has been accomplished. They've done it, right? So what then, right? So it's our challenge to receive um, the free gift of grace, but continue worshiping in the wilderness. So the mobility of this tent of meeting illustrates God's connection to this wandering people who would be expecting and planning for God's presence to be there every single day, day in and day out. In fact, some scholars point out that this was the main goal, that the promised land came about because they weren't satisfied with worshiping in the wilderness. And that that wasn't the original plan. I think that's really interesting. Are we called to go back into the wilderness and not plan for the promised land, but reside with God in the wilderness in the moment? Can we do it? Can we try? Sure. Alex says, sure. (laughs) Will you lead us, Alex? (laughs) Can we receive this gracious invitation to engage in a relationship with God, one that is completely accessible, but that requires effort and intentionality? Can we exist in the tension of what God has already accomplished, but know that there's still more waiting for us, but also requiring active participation from us? So, I think we can ask the worship team to come back up and get ready for communion. I don't know what your introduction and interaction with communion was or has been. For me, there's honestly always been a bit of pressure on it because whether or not this was intentionally communicated to me, um, I took on a very early idea that communion was a form of forced confession, um, that we needed to take it every single week, and you better get your minds and your heart straight before you take it. Otherwise, don't even think about it, right? So I remember at least one time as a child holding onto my communion, not taking it until after the service when I could apologize to my sister for arguing in the car because it wouldn't have been right for me to come to God's table with that on my mind, right? On some levels, that outcome is good, I suppose, right? Um, But I think I kind of misunderstood that the grace is freely given doesn't matter what is on your mind or on your heart or what you did in the car to your sibling, okay? It's freely given. You don't get to earn it. You don't get to achieve it. You just get to receive it. And so we take on the idea that we get to receive this, and when we do, it changes our hearts and everything else and allows us to engage in the ceremony that we didn't earn. No one has to take communion, but it's freely given. So I invite everybody to participate if you would like, and then maybe see what happens. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. If you would like to give, you can go to gracechurchnwa.org forward slash give. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.